You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, where we go back the Desert Storm. Yes, the Desert Storm story, which we haven't had many of here on the Hazard Ground. Excited for you guys to say it. Actually, it's a story we've told once before, but from another perspective. So you'll hear that coming up in just a moment. Please continue to use our Amazon promotion. You go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button up at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's an easy way for you to help out veterans charities just by doing your Amazon shopping and make sure you go to hazardground.com first. Also works through your smartphones, very convenient. It'll redirect it to the app. So if you save all your credit card information, it's user-friendly. So again, hazardground.com, the place to go. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews and leave us five-star reviews wherever you get these podcasts. We certainly appreciate it, but that helps the algorithm, helps grow this hazard ground community and continues to to get these stories out there to as many people as possible. So please, uh, Apple reviews, five-star reviews, thumbs up. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Thumbs up and a like to all the content there. We certainly appreciate that. Uh, and share it wherever you can as well. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. This week's guest, as a former member of the United States Army, retired Master Sergeant with over or almost 22 years of service, more than half of his career was spent in the special operations world as a Green Beret. And as I mentioned earlier, he deployed to Desert Storm. He was actually stop lost right before 9-11, but uh, it was eventually retired in 2003, spent time as a federal air marshal, worked for Raytheon, and is the author of a book called No One is Fatherless, which uh, includes 365 daily devotionals, and he's here to share his story about something that happened in uh, Desert Storm in, uh, uh, was it, I think it was Saudi Arabia, I'll get, let me get it right here, it was, uh, anyway, long story short, he'll, I'll let him tell it, but it was one of those <laughs> missions where um, his team was discovered. They were Green Berets in, 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 embedded, and they were discovered by the enemy. And uh, much similar to what you saw in Operation Red Wings and Lone Survival, uh, I'm getting very long-winded here. I'm going to let him tell the story. <laughs> it is Dan Kostrevsky joining us here on the Hazard Grab Podcast. Dan, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Uh, you're most welcome. Honored to be here. Thank you so much for giving me this Now, now that I butchered the beginning of your story, I should have kind of set it all out here. But your story is actually tied into uh, the, the the story that Chad Balwans from Episode 1 40 um and oda 525 yes, sir. Uh, in fifth special forces group told um and that was you know way back when you have to go back to uh, some of our episodes from 2019 to get it but it is episode 140 if you'd like the connective tissue here uh, yes. of what had happened and, and you know that moral dilemma um that was where you were discovered by the local populace and what you do and if you've seen the movie lone survivor it's very similar to that but this was obviously preceding all of that and so i'm glad that uh, you and your team reached out um you know What's great is that Chad's episode was so long ago. The fact that you guys are, you know, uh, years later reaching out to kind of right. share this. again, I think it's fantastic. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's, all, it's, it's, it's an incredible honor to share the past because that's what we learn our greatest lessons. So uh, what are your questions? <laughs> I, I was, started, I'll just tell you that I'll, I'll, I'll just share right off the bat. You know, I was the new guy on 525 as a, as a young medic coming through the Q course, um, as Chad has shared numerous times. And um, that uh, that was my first real combat to war deployment. I did have a bit of a christening in Somalia 
upon my arrival to fifth group when we were in Mogadishu prior to Gulf Storm and we had to exit. The that country. was actually prior to. Oh yeah. Prior to the down as well. Yes. But so, I, I got a taste and of, you know, the, how fast things can change on, yeah. on a battlefield or in foreign countries in regards to hostilities. So, so you signed ahead. up, you signed up at a time that was completely peacetime. Why did you end up signing up? Well, I came in in 1981 uh, as a result of, uh, well, I was arrested, you know, being a young teenager. <laughs> and I, I didn't, I, I uh, uh, was told by the judge to go talk to the recruiter and come up with something to do in a short amount of time. Yeah, so I, uh, For the civilians I just, listening, there's a Jody call, a cadence, uh, got a letter <laughs> in the mail, go to war, go to jail. You know, that's the old draft thing, but uh, yeah. But you you were you were embodying I, that. I was that guy. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I got I got in a little bit of a bind, you know, in a little town of Perry, New York, and uh, Judge Ruth Milks uh, directed Sergeant Stanley, my recruiter, to find me a job. So that's wow. how I entered the Army, and ironically, as a military police person. So did you know anything about the Army? Oh yes. Okay. Yeah, I was I you know in the old black and white TVs, and uh, I was a big fan of John Wayne growing I knew up. That was coming. Yep. And the Green Berets were on there. But uh, I grew up in a farming community, um, living it out there on a, on a, on a cattle farm, if, you know, with a lot of different farmers and working hard and being in the woods a great deal. I enjoyed trapping and shooting. Um, I was very gifted, you know, with parents and grandparents that uh, taught me how to use a rifle at a very young age. And I was bringing food to the table, you know, at, at 13, 14 years old. Wow. And uh, and trapping and uh, doing different things that out in the woods at night. So my navigation skills, as far as learning how to navigate the terrain and being thinking your loss and so forth, it wasn't uncomfortable for me growing up. When you first signed up, was the idea of a green beret anywhere in your mind? Uh, not exactly. It was more, uh, you know, you're young, you're, you know, you're 18 years old, you're just sure. taking it all in and you're just doing what you're told and learning to work with different people from all different walks of life. And, uh, you know, I had drill sergeants that were from the Vietnam war and, you know, they, you know, I, I had a lot, to, you know, I had a lot to learn and being with, uh, you know, just being through basic training AIT at Fort McClellan, Alabama. So I was just sucking it up and just doing what I was told. I actually thought it was pretty nice to be able to wake up at six o'clock instead of four thirty to go milk the cows and do different things. So, uh, was was there any part of you during like basic and AIT was like jail's got to be better than this? Oh no, I didn't want to go to jail. Oh, this was much better than jail. All right. All right. I mean, the food was great. You know, I was putting on weight. You know, life was good. Yeah. You know, for me, yeah, I was I was enjoying it. Yeah, some people tell you, listen, man, this has got to be where you just can't. This can't jail can't be this bad, can it? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, all right. So you end up in Germany for the first three years of your career, right? right. Uh, and, and that's where you first get uh, exposed to the idea of special ops. Well, I, I had the, you know, I was a physically fit young man and uh, I was selected to attend a French commando school in Trier, Germany, of which uh, one of the folks, uh, one of the soldiers that was there with me was a staff sergeant and he was a green beret out of 10th group. And, uh, and we even, uh, and we were being trained different things and, you know, just, uh, military operations and urban terrain, survival tactics, you know, escaping, you know, your seer school type training. And uh, we even escaped from the camp one night and uh, got out 
and visited a guest house. I mean, you know, it was just the typical little don't don't do this, but we did it because we were trained to do it kind of thing. And uh, and I one of the little rascal things that we did is we hung our underwear up on the flagpoles, which was the three countries that were attending the camp. And uh, that wasn't my idea, but I was just following along, keeping up with my brother, the Green Beret. And uh, of course, we paid a price the next morning when now the formations were out there and our little underwears were flapping in the wind and they had to figure out who did that. So that was my groundbreaking to being a, a Green Beret kind of kind of spirit, if you would. Um, did that sort of at least have you start asking questions about like, you know, how do I do this for the American side of the house? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'll, you're 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 in that course for three weeks. We went through an escape and evasion period for about seven days across, you know, different mountain ranges and stuff in Europe. And, and yeah, I was definitely getting more interested in it by far. Yeah, absolutely. But I was also having mixed feelings about getting out of the army, you know, finishing my time of duty, going back home. You know, I would go. It wasn't like it, it is today where you can communicate and you had video chat and all these other things. So my communications with my brothers and sisters were very infrequent. I was the oldest of five children. Uh, and uh, and I, I did miss my brothers and sisters and my parents and so forth. So I did get out, you know, I had a break in service. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. I had a break in service. I was out for about six months. I was working in Batavia, New York at Ebling electric and all the veterans were coming in. What do you think, you know, putting doubt in my mind about what are you doing, you know, getting out and it, and it really, I missed it. So uh, by chance, you know, God's grace, my uncle Paul, my dad's brother was a recruiter at the Buffalo MEP station. And I contacted him and said, Hey, uncle Paul, can you get me back in? And uh, he explained that, you know, Dan, it's, it's not too good for the prior service guys right now, but I'll see what I can find. And Why did it, what, what was not so good for the prior service guys? Well, they weren't accepting prior service enlistees back in the service. I mean, on, on a wide open scale at that time. So I was in the early stages of BLU can be, I guess you went, once you were, <laughs> I don't think so. You, no, when, if you, you got, you I mean, were it, already what you were and now, now, now you're gone. It was a crapshoot where I was at the mercy of the army. If I was to be able to come back in. Yeah. So, you know, and I came back in as a spec four, uh, 55 Bravo, which is an ammunition specialist. Nothing, nothing cool about that, if you would. And but I'll tell you what happened. My attitude was totally different. Now, the first time being in on the first time, I was doing what I was told and 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 following through. But my second time, you know, getting out and really having the experience of you know surviving out there in in the real world, if you would, and and then thinking, okay, this is I'm I'm going back in. So coming back in, my attitude was entirely different. Uh, I was I was in to win it, and I had a I was honor graduate for you know basically all the training that I had gone through. I went to 63rd Ordnance Company up in Fort Lewis. The first uh, one of the range uh, the Ranger Battalion was up there. The uh, first Special Forces group was up there. I went to PLDC. My roommate was a Special Forces communications sergeant, uh, and and then I while I was there I. I learned how to do the paperwork game and talk to the first sergeants. I mean, when you're, when you're a troop, you're, at, you're literally at the mercy of your first sergeant and platoon sergeant. So I had learned the, the 4187, you know, that. Yeah. Form. And it's I still had around, that by the way. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I I learned how to fill that out. I had a little assistance there from the the, the my my communication sergeant there in the Green Berets at first group. We had all the right stuff in the right places, and uh, I was allowed to go to airborne school like right after PLDC. And uh, you know, if you, if you Fort Benning, you know, they had the little field tables out there, and they had the different guys from the eighty second, the Ranger Battalion, and there was a new table there with the one sixtieth, you know, and I was like. And they and they needed my MOS, and they, we can we can get you there right away. And I was like, okay, I'm in. Let's go. So uh, I literally left from jump school and went straight to 160th, and I was at the receiving station, and I was greeted by um, a sergeant there in civilian clothes, which I wasn't mentally prepared for, and I was uh, brought to the task force 160th headquarters, and 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 there I was in the. Uh, they called it the fire platoon. So that was the airborne platoon that airdropped the rockets and the fuel to support air operations, aviation operations for special operations command, the night stalkers. Yeah. Uh, and the, and I guess the earliest days of it, right? Um, the earliest days of it. Yes. And did, uh, did you yeah. realize at the time what you were getting involved into? Not, ex- no, not exactly. No, not, a, no, not at all. But I was immediately, uh, imp- you know, excited you know, uh, physical training was the real deal. Physical training. Um, the captain Buffkin was my, our first team leader. He was a, he was a ranger and he's, and he pushed us to our limits in regards to, uh, being prepared to go into foreign countries and setting up fuel pods, ammunition, rockets, 2.75 inch rocket pods. And, taking care of the little birds and black hawks and whatnot that we had to, that were in involved in combat. So as you're starting to get this experience, uh, you know, does somebody come to you and say, Hey, uh, Dan, would you like to be a green beret? Do you want to try to to do this? You you know, something that you want to do, or, or are you the one who's, you know, raising your hand saying, pick me, pick me. I was I, I I was immediately identified to be the guy to go to send to the boards, you know, the soldier of the month board, the NCO of the month board, the NCO of the quarter, these boards that the military has. And I was I, I was doing well with that. And um, they wanted to send me SOCOM had just organized itself. And that's where the Green Berets and the first and the Ranger guys, you know, would compete for these same boards. And um, Sergeant Major Farrow said, Dan, I want you to compete against these guys. And so I had to brush, you know, I brush up on numerous infantry skills and the M60 machine guns, taking it apart, putting it together, all these different communication skills with the different radios and so forth. I had to have my land nav skills at, at the, at the, at peak performance and to be an extreme, you know, the physical condition to, to navigate these land nav courses in, in short time the road marches and so forth. So I, you know, of course I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go for it. I want to, I want to give it a shot. And uh, so I, I did compete in the 1987 uh, special operations command NCO of the year. And and I did take that title. Wow. So, yes. So when that happened, uh, it was. See, now, technically you are not. I was in the green beret. I wasn't. Yeah, even, I, was going, so, I mean, it's even more impressive that technically, I mean, you're, and for those who don't know who are civilian, I mean, there are, non green berets inside green beret units yeah. they still need cooks they yeah. still need 
Yeah, we support, still, we're, you know, I was a support punks. guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so you know, they're, they're they still need mechanics. They're all there. Um, they're just right. you know, not actual Green Berets. And it's right. pretty impressive, though, to say the least, that you were able to uh, to beat all of them. Yes, and 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 so we're, uh, long story short, I was in at the front desk of Command Sergeant Major Homestock, and and in there with General Suddeth. And a 4187, again, was sitting in front of me for B to go to Q course. And I was, and, and it was just, it was like the, the best gift ever. It's like, now, they yeah. told you that they, they, they you didn't ask. No, I, was, I didn't have to ask. I went in there and then we discussed and he discussed it, the needs of the uh, special operations. And there was a, you know, extreme shortage of medics at the time. And, um, and I was invited to sign the dotted line and go. And I was, fired up i was i wanted to go and 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 a great part about it was nobody could say no <laughs> i couldn't be denied by a, a by a platoon sergeant or a captain or somebody else because you talk to a general and, and, and yeah. a csm yeah i was i had the green light i was like yeah you can go because that happens in 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 the military you know they want to keep everybody wants to keep their people and uh so yeah, so I got I had the green light to go, and I. I mean, I, were you aware that there are other special specializations within the Green Berets that you could have done, whether it was a weapons sergeant, communications sergeant, demolition kind of deal, or yes, okay. I was. You have an, yeah. a, a, a personal trip. There was never. I I'd really rather be the weapons sergeant kind of deal. No, I, I, you know, I, my dad was a butcher. All right, so I and and my neighbor was a veterinarian, Butch DeGroff, and. uh I had grown up on a farm in, in a farm and I was used to blood. I was used to the anatomy of an animal uh, and the, all the, how the heart worked, the heart. I mean, I already knew all that stuff growing up as a kid on a farm. So this stuff, and I had the, I had the natural uh, gravitation to want to learn more about how that body worked. And I knew enough about you know, with the communication sergeant that I was with and the engineering sergeant that I was with in uh, French commando school, they, they, they talked highly of their medics and all the different things, the surgery this, that they would do, the veterinarian skills that they were allowed to do and so forth. And so this was, this was the green light to put it to the pedal to the metal and go. Okay. Go so uh, you get sent to the Q course uh, and, you know, the, the medic stuff is interesting um, because, and, and I don't know if you went through this, but I remember, you know, the Green Berets I deployed with had informed me um, that, you know, one of the things they do in the Q course for medics is they, you know, take an animal that's going to be euthanized and they basically ask you to keep it alive for 18, 24 hours. So they'll shoot it and you got to stop the bleeding and they'll break its leg and you got to splint it. Then they'll, you know, so you lab. It. yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah mean, absolutely. People, there are some PETA folks out there probably listening. No, they're actually not. Yeah, there are people who be incredibly human, yeah. but that the, the idea is that you know, on the battlefield, when someone gets blown up, shot, or whatever, there's yeah, multiple burn, I mean, triage burns the, the whole nine yards. I mean, you really had to understand the, the your ABCs, your airway, your breathing, your uh, uh, circulations, you know, stabilizing the neck, spine, um, tourniquets. You know, you, yeah, the medic side of the house, what most everybody attributes to is like a paramedic, you know, your trauma medicine. But the other side of being a medic is actually, you know, the pharmaceutical side of it, the nursing skills that are involved, 
uh, the veterinarian skills. I, I mean, I was so enthused to be able to come back to my uh, to fifth group after graduation and helping my neighbors uh, neuter their cats and dogs and stuff. Ah, <laughs> you know, uh, it, I, it, it is true. Uh, and I, I don't, again, I don't know if it was back then, but special forces medics are technically the only people allowed to perform surgeries that aren't doctors. Yeah. I'm not taught yet. Minor surgeries, I would say. I mean, I, all the surgeries that I was involved with, which, in, you know, not to get crazy here, but I mean, we 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 did minor surgeries with our own teammates and so forth. To, I mean, vasectomies, even, you know. But these are the skills that well, you. What's your team? You're volunteering for that one? No, I mean, hey, it, it's everything. I mean, it's treating for every medical situation. You get with a doctor, you get, and then you you go to the, you go to the. Blanchfield Hospital, and you you perform the different surgeries, minor surgeries as they are, so and your skills are perfected. Um, and yeah, I mean there was there was you know birthing babies and so forth in Somalia, and and right. and dealing with kids with some horrid uh, injuries, you know, putting them back together, these different uh, diseases and things that you'd come across in the orphanages, and. Um, and and you and you learn how to take care of these things and and give people relief. All right, so you you put on that 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 tab on your shoulder. I mean, do you feel like part of the crew now? I mean, it, how how big of a moment is it for you when you're actually? Well, oh, it, it's a it's a big moment. Yeah, right. like we start our medical class and we went through the uh, pre phase. You know, you go through your little beat you up phase there, and um, you go through your training and the medical the medical portion of the SFQC course is, is the longest. And you ha- you get recycled and so forth. I was blessed. I was never recycled. I uh, I think I st- we started our class with like thirty something medics, and there were eight of us that actually finished without being recycled. And um, so I, I, you know, I was very focused. I was I was sharing with some folks, you know, how the the stack of books that, and modules that we we went through to study and and perform i mean it was a it was a performance based training you it wasn't passing multiple choice tests and fill in the blanks you had to perform you had to suture you had to stop those bleedings you're talking about the goat lab and you had to write those nursing notes and yes if your patient died you went to the a medical board and you had to answer very serious questions and you saw your peers you know, get recycled and, and, and drop out of the course. And some of the mental stress was so much that they just quit. They just disappeared. They, they literally went AWOL and in one situation I recall. So, I mean, the, the stress was definitely there and um, you know, and, and those that finished were, were prepared to, to conduct those medical procedures and so forth that would be needed on a team that may be desolate behind enemy lines or, or working with host nation forces. That was the big thing, you know, Right. So, um, but yeah, so, you, you had a big chip on your shoulder when you had that green break, the S, the S, the special force. As, as you should, I mean, as you should dude. The, 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 yeah. the elite few. Um, all right. So now you get a, a chance to go to Mogadishu. Now, this isn't the Mogadishu for Black Hawk Town, which happened in 1983. No. This was in, in 1989. It, it, you know, we're still obviously doing goodwill missions and everything else. Yeah. My the- first trip to Mogadishu was right out of the cube course. I was actually assigned to the medical platoon at, at group, which was kind of a disappointment. I was like, medical platoon, man, I've done sport stuff. I want to give me right. somewhere else. But with all that said, second battalion, and there's always a shortage of medics. So uh, yeah, I was on the next thing flying. You know, I just got married in December. Uh, I got my wife to uh, settled in down there at Fort Campbell in Clarksville, Tennessee. And within four weeks, I was already, I was in Africa. 
So, um, and, and Mo and we linked, you know, they had different teams that were operating there and me as a medic, you know, I linked up with the senior medic on the ground down there and, uh, and, and started, you know, surveying and conducting operations in accordance with whatever, you know, win the hearts and minds of the people. So, but as a political situation, uh, quickly crashed, uh, and we had to evacuate and evacuate other, uh, embassy personnel and so forth out of country while we were there. So it was a quick exodus. It was, was not a, like a raging firefight or anything like that, but the country definitely went into political uh, chaos. Did you, when you get on this, this, you know, short de- deployment to Mogadishu, is this sort of like your first awakening to a part of the world you didn't know existed? Absolutely. Yeah. One of the most shocking experiences I had immediately, like within a couple of days of being there, was I was riding with the senior one of the senior medics in in a in a truck and I was watching uh how women were treated. Uh they were, you know, I I, I particularly a note I took note of uh of women carrying large bundles, wood, whatnot, on their backs and being whipped, you know, by a gentleman that was behind them because they weren't moving fast enough and he wasn't carrying anything. And I was ready, you know, I was literally ready to come out of that truck and just blast that guy, you know, just, you know, and, and my medic was like, Hey dude, you need to chill out right now. Cause you just need to sit back and soak it all in. You're, you, you need to just take a chill pill. So, and, you know, so I, and, and yeah, it was, a, it was, it was, they could, they can teach you all they want in school, but till when it's in your face and you see women, you know, just see things that, that a gentleman would not appreciate, I guess it would put it that way, if you would, uh, it was an eye opener. Yeah, it was, it was a shock. All right. So you get back and this is when you actually get tied into ODA 525. Oh, yeah. Um, so you're, now you're going to a team, you're leaving this. I'm going to a team. I'm very excited. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, little did you know how, how important that team was at the time, but uh, right. you, you also have, a, a. I mean, again, this is, in 89. So we don't kick off desert storm until 91. Oh, so you got the time in there uh, going through schools and everything else. Right. So, yeah. So I, I, I get to a dive team and, and I had, uh, well, James Linder was our captain on the team and, and he ended up being, you know, a, a counterterrorism commander at late, later. I mean, he ended up leaving our team and going there. I had Butch Young as our team sergeant. He is like the godfather of the battalion. He had a great deal of experience and, um, you know, they, they, and I'm the new guy and I'm green as green gets in regards to the culture, if you would, of being on a, the shark men. So I was, uh, in the training and, and I was pushed, you know, and I wasn't, I could swim, but I wasn't at ease in the water. Like I needed to be. So that was their first focus is get me in the pool. And, um, and I failed miserably. <laughs> I could not, you know, as far as treading water with my hands above my, all the things that they had, all the pre-scuba type tasks, I wasn't doing all that great. And I, and I remember even getting to where I lived at the apartment complex and I was watching this little kid in the pool and he could, he was treading water. Now he's a little chunky, you know, and I, was, I finally befriended that little fart and I said, Hey, how, how the heck are you treading water? And he says, I'm just sitting in the water. And that was like all these little things just sit in the water. And I, I needed to bend my legs as I was trying to fin like pedal hard to keep my hands up above and the water level at my chest but when I relaxed and sat in the water and just did the simple little 
egg beater movement with my boom. That was it. Game on. Had it figured out and I could hold my breath for almost two minutes. So that wasn't the big deal. It was just like learning the tactics of being calm in the water. The water's your friend. And um, once that light bulb turned on, it was it was game on. And and the team, and I felt like I belonged on the team, you know, because if you don't sure. have a badge, you're not in. You're not because you come and go if you don't if you don't pass. And um, and I wanted to stay. And, you know, I had Buzzsaw and Charlie and, uh, Charlie and, and Jimbo. And these were big guys. I mean, these were, con- you know, experienced team guys. Jimbo was a, a combat veteran from Grenada, from Ranger Battalion. I, I had, you know, some really strong physically physical people on the team and I'm the young medic. So I, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of dirt to eat to, to, to prove my to, to be accepted. You know, I felt that pressure. So, uh, eventually I ended up going to Key West initially to be a dive med tech. So I had, you know, I had gone down there and, and successfully graduated that course. And then, uh, soon thereafter, I went down with the team as a team training event with other other people from special operations command to do the water infiltration course. And that's some, a lot of boat work, a lot of swimming and forth. I did not finish that course. My brother was killed in a car accident up in New York. So I was, uh, red, that was a, that was a kick in the geezer right there. So my youngest brother was killed in a car accident and I was, I left that course. That's, I did not finish it. So, uh, but then I, I, you know, when everything was settled up, up at home, I returned back to my team and um, and I continued to train and get refo. You know, I was continued to train. I had my brothers on my left and right, and uh, they were supporting me 100. percent And I was fired up for pre scuba. I did extremely well in pre scuba. I was I was a running fool, and uh, and I was excited to go to the SF, to go to the combat diver course, man. And I and I rocked it. It was it was a blast. So uh, now the, the irony the irony of all this is that yeah. you. You go to dive medical school. You go to the water infiltration course. You go to the combat diver course. All this yeah. goes on in 1990, only for them to send you to the desert where there is no water. Yeah. In late 1990, in support of, at the time, Operation Desert Shield. Right. Um, yeah. So, all right, give us the background. Like, when do you find out you're going? What are you told? I mean, obviously, uh, a mission is a lot different than the regular conventional forces. Right. So, but w- what did you hear leading up to August 1990? Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, my wife just had our first son, Shane, in June. Or, I'm sorry, July 13th. And uh, so I was a new father with my first son. And um, I, was, I was taking that in and I was enjoying it. And all of a sudden, you know, we hear about Kuwait being invaded. We get locked down and we're palletizing to deploy very quickly. Um so I'll, and I had a senior medic that was on the team, Brad, and 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 we really just organized all of our equipment that we had and started thinking forward as in, you know, for every potential uh forward internal defense operation we might be on or we knew we we're going to have to work with host host nations. So, you know, that aspect of setting up uh triage uh camps, medical these kind of things that to, to support operations over there. So basically it was really a logistical sit down, make sure you got all your, all your tools to be successful. We had numerous team meetings, company meetings. There were rumors of losing our, our team leader, James Linder, 
of which we did lose. And, and I'm the new guy. So I am really in listening mode for the most part. Our team had done numerous training events prior, not even knowing Desert Storm was coming. I mean, we were assaulting and blowing up bridges. I mean, we were live fire exercises. We were already throwing grenades, shooting laws, AT4s. I mean, all that pre-team training. I mean, there's available time to go to the range. We were at the range. We were setting up these 18, 20-mile road marches, these uh, escape and evasion corridor-type events for us to, for someone to tell us, oh, your helicopter's not going to be here. You have to go to your next exfil site. And then, uh, and being exhausted and having to go another five miles through wherever, whatever terrain to, to get to your, to your exfil. So that, that aspect of working together with the guys and, and we, we did take a great deal of pride in our physical uh, strengths and our shooting skills. I mean, we were, we were gifted in, in, in shooting. I'll just put it that way. And, you know, so uh yeah, we were ready. We we got our ducks in order, uh, but we were we were a little shaken about where things could go uh with losing our team leader and then also losing our team sergeant Butch Young to the to be he was uh moved up to the company sergeant major position upon arrival in Saudi Arabia. So and and I did get to st- I stayed with Butch Young. I went to the they called it the B team. Right. But I and 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 we were linked up with our company commander, Butch Young, the, the company sergeant major. I was the company medic at that time, and we were assigned to a Bangladesh unit, and we were moved forward into the desert. And I was with, I was with Butch until they reconstituted uh, ODA five two five with Chad Baldwin as a team leader, and moving Charlie Hopkins up as the team sergeant. Okay, so. Uh, you're in Saudi Arabia. You're waiting uh, for the the queue uh, that we're going to turn Operation Desert Shield into Operation Desert Storm. But right as you're getting on the ground there initially, uh, right? What's what's it like? What's day to day like? I mean, are you expecting to see combat at this point in time? I mean, because again, you know, there's a different level that Green Berets are yeah. operating. That's, you know, some of them are doing. You know, let's just call it behind enemy line stuff. You know, there's some foreign internal defense obviously going on. There's there's ingratiating with the local populace to try to figure out what's what. I mean, you, you know, you as a, as a medic aren't necessarily involved in any of that, but some of your team guys are. Yes. So w- what's kind of the, the, in the in the I big? What are you what are you hearing about the team? The, we're hearing all kinds of you know the other teams were getting assigned to different nations armies different national armies and groups some of the teams like the halo like you know 524 and so forth they were getting assigned to go to the border and that was like yeah i want to be on the border kind of thing so uh yeah so this and and i'll just tell you straight up the heat was flipping up you know for a young guy the heat knocked <laughs> me off my tail man i can it's remember it's a dry heat it's a dry yeah, heat. dry heat. I was not, I mean, it took three days to just recover from the nausea of the heat. You yeah. couldn't drink enough water. I mean, it, that's what really smoked me in August over Joyce. there. Yeah, it was, it was hot. And as a medic, you know, I was like, holy crap, man, we got, we got to have bags of IVs ready to go and, and get ready to start sticking guys. Cause if we have to deploy like right in this you know, in this environment, we're going to be hurting. So, but you know, all that stuff was, you know, the, the leadership was phenomenal. They, they had the preparation, the logistics were there. We were sent down to the bat cave. We were protected. It was a matter of waiting for these missions to come down, who we're linking up with, how we're getting forward, the vehicles, the Toyota trucks, you know, all the, all this stuff coming together. 
And uh, like I said, I, I was, I was sent, I was moved up, you know, medic, the youngest medic on the team. I was moved up, you know, I put on the B team with uh, Sergeant Major uh, Young, Butch Young, and, and, and we got loaded up and we went out to the desert. And then we weren't there very long when action started to happen. Scud missiles started to fire. And when you're sitting there next to a Patriot missile counter missile system and it goes off, and you, your ears are going to be ringing. So that was the first wake up call. And then you had the red dragon alerts that would happen. And that meant inbound scuds. And, you know, we didn't know if they had, you know, chemical weapons. I mean, there's all kinds of that fear, you know, or anticipation of some kind of biological or chemical type nerve agent or whatever that could be deployed with these scuds. So we had that aspect of the, of the training and prep preparations being made also. Uh, we, my first christening really out there with the Bangladesh, because we had other ODAs with different elements of host countries and the, we were digging in foxholes and so forth up near the border. And one of the guys had set his e-tool off the side. Now we're at night moving in, digging in, and he left his e-tool like a pick sitting on the side. Well, his, his foxhole buddy comes down with his e-tool, hits that e-tool and it comes up and it splits his scalp. Oh man! Shovel underneath his scalp. So, with that said, uh, that was a that was that was a that was my the first trauma, you know, to deal with over there. Now they have the, team, the team medic on the team. He he did it. He was already on top of things. So, and I was you know getting there behind the ball curve, but still, you know, to see the guys scalp last open and the you know the, all the business going on so basically and, and you go into basically your trauma medicine the irrigation using sterile iv fluids washing everything out getting the dock up on the radio what kind of antibiotics is there's we're, we're not flying helicopters up there near the border at this time i mean the we didn't know when the exfil was going to happen so we immediately went into you, you just fell right into your training you had that you had your uh pharmaceuticals you had your pain meds you had your you know your bandages and your sutures and your, your drainage tubes and things that you would insert up under this. We just, we did that. We worked together. We got this uh, uh, soldier stabilized and uh, it, it was a great, it was a great evening. So, and he got evac within the next 24 hours. So it all turned out well. Now you said you ended up reconstituting with your team. Yes, uh, end up back in your, your back cave. ODA uh, yeah. back in your back cave. And this sort of, precedes you uh with 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 the story that we're we're here to tell yeah. of you guys uh, this small team from ODA 525 uh of guys who were behind taking on Saddam's forces behind enemy lines um right. this is on the eve this is a mission that you had to do inside of Iraq on the eve of the Desert Storm ground war right uh, and so give me the kind of lead up you guys get back together give me the lead yeah, up so get back together what was great about the team that was back there at the back cave they had set up close air support training for the all the different ODAs to come back to the back cave go through that communications with A10s and different aircraft you know dropping bombs doing strafing operations and so forth with aircraft so the nine line and the different you know communication procedures that you would use and the different radios were well refreshed with with the guys our, our 525 guys, and they were going to the range. I mean, all these different, you know, preparations were never stopped and ongoing. We were, and Ch Chad Baldwin's bulldog was assigned to our team and we had an officer so that we, and, and the, the team was, the mission was briefed and we immediately started, you know, prepping and putting together. Terry Harris was extremely resourceful. Jimmy Weatherford, you know, these are the guys that were out there, you know, you know getting things together for us to build 
and acquire materials to put in spider holes and use as hide sites that were very successful during the Falkland Wars that we had studied. So that was our plan. And, and uh, you know, we would do rehearsals in and around the, the training area or the areas, the secure areas, you know, digging in with our different e-tools and whatnot, setting up our optics and communicating back to a notional 18th Airborne Corps. So... So what is the actual mission that you receive on the eve of the ground war? We were looking we were looking for vehicle traffic and military movement coming up and down Highway 7. So that was the mission as it was understood and we wanted to get as close to that highway as we could with the the optics and it's nothing like the optics they have today at all. Um but uh with the optics that we had and um so we plan to be there for five to seven days on the ground. So we we had packed the supplies to do that with to include five gallons of water each for each man. We had an extra rucksack, which I ended up carrying the extra rucksack, being the young lad that I was. And uh, so we were packing in a, a rucksack to cachet with extra radios and batteries and so forth. And um, yeah, we just kept practicing. And that was the mission to report everything that we we're seeing going up and down Highway 7. Okay. Seems pretty simple. Seems pretty straightforward, yeah. right? Yeah, it's um, really, yeah. But the whole idea of any good recon mission is to uh, not get noticed. That's right. Yep. You don't want to get caught. That's the, so, uh, you're not supposed yeah. to know that you're there. Yeah. So, yeah. This mission, take me kind yeah. of through the early parts of it. Is it going well? What, what do you well, see? Well, I mean – during the prep for it, I mean, we had thought of everything to covering the soles of our boots with, with the, you know, what we thought what the Iraqi soldier boot looked like. I mean, all these different, you know, dragging things behind us to cover our tracks. Um, getting in early enough to dig in and be completely concealed. Uh, these, all this, the, these trainings were being conducted and we were successful getting in underground burying ourselves with uh, four people per hole and and existing for three to five days in our training it was it, we were doing it and um so when the mission kicked off you know as as it was stated you know we took off and ended up returning back we were called back and we, we lost hours of time and and we refueled and we took off again and you know the the photo uh, you know just there was a lot, you know, I'm backtracking a little bit here. I mean, you go into isolation, you're doing, it's just you and your guys and you're, you're learning every little bit of piece of information. Uh, you're busting each other's chops at every turn. Me and Buzzsaw were called the Catholic boys, you know, all these little comments and stuff coming on and, you know, are you going to pray? You know, you know, all these little things, these little jokes that you have with each other and you, cause you know, each other so well. I mean, you, you know, you talk about the signals and the things you got. No, you you would just see that your teammate walking at night, the silhouette. You knew exactly who it was. You know, just just all these little things that 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 we had. You know, we'd been so close together, and we really it was it was a well prepared professional group of guys that were really working through every course of action that you could imagine to include being compromised by diff by people. And I had the drugs and things that I carried on me to, to put somebody out, you know, medically, 
uh, pharmaceutically and, and put them down while we tied them up and so forth. And um, so that was thought about and it, and it, it was discussed and so forth. And, and that's, that's how it went. Now, when it happened, I mean, we were way behind the timeline um, and you, and you, me and Jimmy Weatherford were the guys that were on first watch. You know, we had a, I called it a woodchuck hole. You know, if you grew up in the Northeast, you know what woodchucks are. Yeah. You know? So, uh, so as our woodchuck hole had it and we heard the little voices outside our hole and we kind of, I was kind of tapping bulldog and giving a little kick to buzzsaw and saying, you know, Hey guys, we got company. And, um, man, I was looking over at Jimmy who was looking out the hole and he quickly jumped back and looked at me and I'm looking at the hole and there's this little kid's face sticking in the hole, you know? And I'm like, oh. wow. so yeah. So we had a, we had a, like, like a big bush pulled over our, our back door, if you would. And I just, and I was the guy close to the door and I, you know, and, and, and I just went out the door and, uh, and I was drawn down on these two girls and I saw a little, little boy in the behind him and bus. I was right there, right at my side. And, it was God's grace. I, I got to tell you, man, when Bulldog said we didn't come here to shoot kids. I mean, just think of that statement right there on two guys. Another ounce of pressure on that trigger would have changed the rest of history. I'll just put it that way. And and then to catch those, to catch them, it was just un, unthinkable because as soon as I looked over the edges of that ditch there were people everywhere they were out there collecting wood they had their their little herds out there i probably saw 20 people out there now these were just curious kids right like they yeah they're out there with their mother her mother's probably out there collecting wood she's probably going to have to collect some water this ditch that we were near did have a, a little amount of water in it. So who, so I'm, you know, they're out there and, and they saw something that just didn't look right. So they were investigating the, the older girl was probably the, my granddaughter's age, probably eight, nine years old, you know, and the other one was maybe a year younger, a year and a half younger than her. And then the little boy was probably four years old. Cause when they took off running, they had that little boy between them and he was legs were not touching the ground. They were running full speed away from the green monsters that just came out of the ground. Cause that's literally what it, I mean, I, it was green cause they froze, you know, there, there was like a stop in time right there that everybody was just frozen, you know, and, um, and they took off. So, and they were running, you know, running fast, as fast as their little feet would carry them. And, uh, and then it was just a, okay, what do we got to do? We got to let the other guys know another hole. And it was just watch I was, you know, we're watching them and we're watching what the other people are doing and no one suspects anything. No one stops doing what they're doing. And um, I remember sitting there and I knew, I remember I, I started praying already right there. I was like, Oh Lord, we we're in a, you know, I haven't, you know, I started uh, repenting my, my sinful ways yeah. and uh, started, you know, making, making deals with the God almighty and, uh, and moving forward. So uh, the other team was alerted and, and we, 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 we pulled back, we, we gathered what we could and we pulled back. So we were a team of eight again. 
And uh, we went back a little further, but like I said, nothing happened. We're down in this ditch and, and we, we set up, there's some more uh, trees and bushes and so forth. And I remember we, we, we kind of just tucked in there and we were continuing the mission. We had the radio up. We're talking 18th airborne Corps. Uh, no, we're canceling it. We're doing it. And we're actually reporting vehicles and different traffic. Like we, like we were sent there to do. And it was daylight. So it, you could see it and we, we, we had the plan. We'd wait for night. We, we were going to move forward closer. So our night optics could do so we could get where we needed to be to see traffic moving up and down at night. So right. we're, we're already thinking we're going to, we're not leaving. We're, we're going to go forth and do and, and continue the mission. So when you get discovered, I mean, is the first thing fear are, are, are you like now afraid that you have to exfil immediately, get out of there? I mean, what, what what's going through your mind? And, <sighs> and you know, the aforementioned Chad Balwans, who was, it was the, the ODA commander at that point in time, the yeah. team leader, you know, what were the conversations with him? They, he, you know, it, the senior guys got together, you know, the Rob Gardner, the, the Intel Sergeant, the team Sergeant, um, Charlie Hopkins, Daryl Hovermel. These, these senior guys were just, taking it all in and, and, and looking and, and reevaluating the, the situation. And this, and the, the thing is we're not under attack, you know, and, and there was a comfort there, for, you know, and we had been awake already all night. We've been digging in. I mean, physically exhausted and um, contemplating, Hey, do we take the yellow pill now or not? You know, like to, to stay awake, you know, no, don't take the yellow pill yet. That's a last resort, you know? And, uh, but we were able to continue. We kind of went back into this rotation and, and I'll tell you what, I dozed off because I was, I was under a bush and I dozed off. I wasn't on the watch per se, and a goat woke me up. So I'm sitting there with under this bush. And then I just feel this presence of something really close to me. And a goat was eating off the branch of the, of the, was eating like, like a foot away from my face. And I opened up my eyes and I saw a man and a boy walking towards us because the goats were in, um, there was goats in our ditch right up on us. So we had a flock of goats and the herder and his son were, were, oh man, five, 10 yards away from us. And Bulldog got up and started talking Arabic to the guy. But this oh, one, wow. felt, yeah, this one felt different because the guy's, his headdress, the colors, you know, he wasn't your average nug. I just got that, you know, I had that, you know, and the guys were, you know, we weren't like talking out loud to each other. We're trying to be quiet and lace and be still. And, and I, you know, we're setting up, you're checking your perimeter and everything and looking around, you're, you've got cover, you know, like who else is here? So that, that all that started going down. Well, this, this guy wasn't happy. He had that look of disgust on his face. Like he's mad. He grabbed his little, he grabbed his 11, 12 year old son and pulled him away. And they took off running down that field. And it wasn't shortly thereafter. We, I heard, we heard three shots, you know, three shots. And I was like, Oh, well, that could be the old rally the boys signal, you know? And it wasn't shortly thereafter that, that we started seeing, you know, I, I, I called it the national guard coming out you know, we had a village right across the highway and there was these groups. They looked like a, a, they had mixed uniform clothes on They They weren't tactically. They're just like 
a group was coming down the middle of the field. Another group was coming from the south. Another group was coming from the north. And they're just kind of like walking in our direction. And I was like, oh, boy, this is going to get retarded. And, you know, it wasn't. So we just held our ground. We had the radio up. We're talking. And um, the middle group, a couple of them got pretty close. And Bulldog, again, stood up. I mean, basically almost stood totally up and said some things in Arabic. And that's when the sh- when some shots were fired in our direction. You heard those, you know, the, the bullets flying by. So he drops down and then it was, and they ran. They ran a, basically away. Those initial couple of dudes ran. And um, so that was the time to say, all right, we're pulling, we're, we're moving, we're getting out. And that's when we piled our things up at, there was like a T intersection in a ditch and we piled our gear up. Terry Harris had some explosives that he rigged up that already had pre-rigged up just for this occasion. And um, a lot of the gear was left in that pile and it was, it was rigged to blow. So, um, and then we took off running down that ditch and uh, under fire. So we were getting shot at, at this time, the, the game, I mean, the fire, the, the bullets were flying, the zings were flying, the thuds in the, you know, hitting the mud, you know, I, you remember that you just hear the, the thuds of the rounds hitting in the dirt around you and the mud around you. And, um, and we ran and we were running down that thing with our, with our weapons ready for whatever was to our rear. We didn't want hundred percent sure. Buzzsaw was in the front. And I just remember I was like three or four men down and, um, and we did our couple banana peels, but they weren't like, we didn't felt they weren't like pursuing us like right on our backs, you know? And then we heard the explosion go off. We heard some screams with that and, and buzz. And then shortly there buzz the, the ditch ends here. And that's, but you know, it was a perfect firefighting position. It was about three and a half feet deep. It was like a pool at the, at the L shape. I took the corner of the corner of the corner. We, we fell into position. We had perfect 360 degree fields of fire. Now the weapons that we had, we had a couple people with the nine mil short range weapons and stuff that, but the six of us had M 16s with, and a couple of us had M two or three grenade launchers. And we, and we covered for ourselves, the guys that, that had the, the nine mils, they were at the point and at their, at the, at the end. So they, Anything that was coming up that ditch, they could handle efficiently, whether they come up from behind or to our front, inside that perfectly formed battle position. I'll put it that way. And um, so then it was literally uh, waiting for the perfect time to come up out of that ditch and let them have it. And, and you know, you, you talk about, you, you asked, you said something about fear. And I remember reading different uh, different uh, dialogues and stories from the Vietnam guys and talking about their mouths being so dry that they couldn't speak and it was hard to breathe. And I was at that point where my mouth was so dry, I, I could not speak. And my our team sergeant, Charlie Hopkins, was dragging a two-quart canteen on about 15 feet of 550 cord. He dropped it at the point man and he ran through the ditch, checking everybody took an observe observation point that was next to a tree. So he could visual under the concealment of that tree and bush. 
He could see everything with his binoculars where they're coming from. But he slowly dragged that two-quart canteen through our ditch, our guys, so they could get some water because of that initial shock, if you would. And having that water just was so, so calming. And then he just started to talk calmly, reporting where the people were at and where they were coming. And Bulldog told us to get ready. He says, you know, that's where the... It's time to fight like junkyard dogs, boys. This is going to be it right here. And then, and then I'll tell you what, man, it was so instinctive when, when that buzzsaw let go with that 203 round and, and, you know, you're in that ditch and then just to come out and your senses are so locked in your eyesight to where you can see the hairs on a person's face at 150 meters. That's how intense your skills get in those moments. And, and every round counted. I'll just leave it at that. And, uh, and it was a very successful initial uh, awakening for them. I'll tell you, you know, Did you get a sense uh, how, how outnumbered you were. Yes, because Charlie was observing these vehicles and trucks and troops offloading at the highway. So yes, you're hearing this and, and you're, you're getting, you know, all my, you, you got your magazines out. You're, 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 you're up and ready and say, all right, this is it. We, we couldn't run. There's nowhere to run. You're on a pool table. You know, right. you're luckily enough, you're sitting in a great fighting position and, and it's, it just, that's it. And man, I'll tell you what, you know, looking, you know, you, I'd look over my right shoulder and I would see the guys locked in. I mean, uh, Jimbo Hovermill had a cigarette in his mouth and this is a combat veteran and he's, he would take a drag on that cigarette and he'd come up out of that hole and boo, 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 you know, and then come back down. Okay. Cause he'd made a mental picture of what was coming next and he'd come out, boom, boom, boom. And then, you know, and Buzzsaw was nailing targets with that M203 and that was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was clicking. And then we got, you know, we had that PRC 90 radio cause things were in a flurry. And um, yeah. we, heard, we heard response on that radio and guard. This is guard and guard on guard. And I started hearing voices and stuff and, and, and it, you know, it, it, it felt good. You know, it felt good. I mean, you never felt that you were free and you're still saying your prayers and you're, and you're, you're just wishing for the best. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you just heard the aircraft in the air and man, I'll tell you what you talk about, God bless the Air Force. I'll tell you, I'm sitting next to Pete over here, my little Air Force brother. I, I'll tell you what, man, that, that, you know, yeah, you hear that scream of those engines up high. And um, I remember the first targets that they took out were on the bridge and Charlie was watching it all. And then the cluster munitions that went off and the ground shaking. And yeah, you hear the noise, the screams, you know, we're, we're winning now. You know, you're, you're not running us down without a good fight here. So, uh, so that, that proceeds to go forward. And after that first hit, things calmed down for a little bit. And then these little pockets would pop up here and there. And, uh, you know, the team started, gra- you know, I had the M16 and he, he grabbed me, pulled me down towards his end. You see those two guys over there, get rid of them, you know, and, and, you know, you're, you're looking cause we had, we started to get the advantage. We could keep our heads above the ground a little bit. Right. And, uh, and we're talking to the aircraft. I'll tell you some, some stupid things that, that happened. I mean, obviously 
I had the pen flares with me. And at one point, you know, the aircraft, the guys were like, we don't, we don't know where you are. And we had like VS-17 panels laid out on the bottom of the ditch, you know, you can't see that from up there, you know, and who's got the pen flares. I got the pen flares. I had the pen flares. So I, you know, you got rounds coming over the top and you stick your hand up there, poof, you shoot that little pen flare up. Well, guess what? You got more rounds coming at you now because you just marked your position, you know, and I said, I don't want to think we need to do that again. You know, all these little, little things that are going on, but, uh, event, you know, it was Jimmy Weatherford had that, uh, little, what is it? Three by two survival mirror. And he started flicking because the moon came up as the sun was still up and he, and, and he was yelling to bus. I'll tell him to fly between the moon and the sun. I'm going to try to hit him with a reflection. Bam. <laughs> Got a hit with that flipping little mirror. That's- and um, yeah, that was, that was the clear marker for where we were at and they did it again. So he was, he was reflecting. He had that sun and he was just hitting it and running it up and down, running it up and down. And really that was the clear, that was the moment of, is that you guys? How simple and ingenious, like all at the same time, right? Like just use what you have in front of you to survive kind of deal. And, um, it, it, and, and all the, it, it just, it, it just went better from that point forward. And then when they would drop their bombs, the buzzsaw would, you know, he was the call for fire expert. I mean, he had those guys on the radio and he would say, you know, from the last hit, 500 meters, you know, this direction or 200 meters, this direction now. And we cleaned house on and that initial ditch, that, that ditch was the tree there. You didn't recognize the ditch when it was all over with, as far as foliage goes. And, um, but there was a ditch North of us that an element had moved into. And I was noticing at about 150 meters out from my position that I, I would see the little heads going by, you know, so I knew there's people in there. And, and then I, and then after a bit, I saw a tripod get placed up into one of the little divots and I was like, "Uh Oh, so I was telling that the bus, I said, dude, I'm not like our West of our position, 150, 200 meters. We got, we got a tripod and I had, I could shoot at the tripod, but you know, that's where they were at. And we're, we were, there was a discussion. Do we, do we need to drop a bomb that close? And the call was made. I've seen a lot of little heads go past that tripod or in that little net, that ditch right up there. And that was also the vicinity of where our, our, our cachet was buried, not even thinking about it at the time, but it was. So the calls were made back and forth and they were going to, this danger close big time. And it, it was, I don't know what size bomb it was. All I know is what, then when they said, put your head down, uh, we, I buried, I buried my face down in there and it was like the ground was like jello it just rolled and all this crap was falling on top of us and and I was just sitting there and I I couldn't hear real well because of the ringing in my ear of all that was going on and I just started looking at the guys and and people were moving around and and but nobody was talking it was like silent for a good bit and I remember hearing the radio guard, guard, where are you? Guard, 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 where are you? And everybody was just kind of stunned. And then finally buzzsaw, you know, we're here, we're here. And it was like, but then, but that area with the drum bomb, there was nothing left. It was a crater. So that, that ditch was just wiped out. And um, from then forward, it was just minor sporadic stuff going on as, as darkness fell. And um, yeah. And then it was, was there a point where you feared for your life during the whole thing yes 
Yeah, absolutely. When we were running down that ditch, getting shot at, and branches yeah. and things were falling yeah. down in the beginning, yeah, and the, yeah. and the thud of the rounds and the zings of the stuff going over your head, and um, yeah, absolutely, right there. Yeah, that experience of like, can I not talk? My my tongue is so my mouth is so dry. I guess that would explain real fear. You sure, know, you're functioning, you're still doing because you're in, you're in you're in that mode of your tr- of muscle memory if you would of just doing exactly how you've been trained and you're was was there a sense that uh oh bleep we just started the war kind of deal no we knew the war was going on okay yeah it wasn't any uh, bleep but we started the war the war was happening well, yeah, but I mean, like, you know, you got the jump on it, so to speak. Like, you weren't supposed to be the one starting the war kind of deal. Yeah, we we knew that it was early on in the actual ground offense kicking off, which was that day. Right. And, um, and, and hey, we're in it. You know, we're in it. And whether we survive it or not, we're in it, and we're going to do the best we can. And, and, man, I'll tell you what, I can't emphasize training enough to, and, and it paid off the rest of my career. There was never any uh, question about, you know, move, shoot, and communicate, and have the and have the professional skills of every individual out there to be the best they can be at any given time because the situation changes instantly, and generally not in your favor. Um, how do you get out of there? When do you get out of there? When do well, you get out of base? Uh, we, we, we wanted to get that. We knew there was aircraft inbound. And I just remember, uh, our team sergeant, Charlie Hop- Hopkins telling me and Terry says, clear, clear our rear, you know? So we had our group there in that ditch and it was silent enough and getting dark enough. We had the night vision goggles and, and we did like a heart shape, you know, from our position to our rear, we found it like another berm, if you would, to, to, as Terry and I were going out and around you know, we, we saw the, the results of the bombing and the firefight as we circled around and we found a spot that would be good to set up our IR lights for the aircraft to see and come in on with some uh, uh, with a berm protecting them from the highway in case, you know, some some elements were out there that we were just not aware of that wouldn't light them up, you know, once they came down to pick us up. So we did a quick recon. We came back. We found a good spot, guys. Pack it up. Let's go. So, and that's basically what happened. And we moved. When you had seen the the destruction from the bombing and everything else, were you like looking around, like, oh shit? But, but I guess, uh, I guess we're winning. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll tell you what. I, you know, I never felt good, or <laughs> to even think about like joking or you know, I knew that the the damage was happening there. And I knew that the lives were lost and, and I was so, I mean, I was elated that none of my teammates were injured or in any way, shape or form. Right. And it was just a, it, it, it was an, it wasn't a time for celebration. Our infill, it was, it was my bird, our bird, Chad Baldwin's bird that hit that berm. And we were on, I mean, I hit the top of the helicopter, you know, inside when we hit that berm. And it it shook and everything. I mean, our gear and everything was all over the place. So 
there was never a time. And we saw the tracer rounds flying through the desert that night as we were infilling. And so even though you're getting on, you had that, okay, we're one step closer to getting out of this situation. You never felt that you were ever out of that situation until we landed at King Khalid military city. So when you get back and you guys start, you know, looking at each other and looking around and not even debriefing, but you know, yeah. what, what are you all kind of reacting? How are you reacting to each other? What are you saying? Well, we're, we're giving, there's some, a lot of, a lot of hugging going on yeah. and, you know, just, it was almost like, like a, like a dream. I, uh, you had been awake that whole time and it was a, it was, you were so happy to be back at the same time. You were so ex- physically exhausted and drained that you just gave everybody a hug I know like some of the guys wanted to start writing, you know, what had happened down. I know Rob was, you know, trying to get folks what just happened because it happened so fast and it was just trying to get together. A, and, and well, first of all, did everybody, is everybody okay? First of all, you know, you get back and you, we've done training exercises where guys accidentally caught a piece of shrap metal and different things that happened and you're flying back on the bird and you, and you look at your arm and it's covered in blood. It's your buddy bleeding because he didn't even feel the shrap metal that hit his shoulder or arm. Right. So it, that aspect of it also happened. So you first, the, the medically, is everybody really okay after all this? And then of course you're, you're pulled in. Everybody from the unit has been listening to this firefight happening on the radio. So everybody's like, you know, you're, you're being greeted and, and then, of course, the, the all the questions start coming at you from the different guys in the debrief, you know, for for hours, right? You know? And and, and not, not just, a scratch on anybody, right? No, no, no shrap. How, how no, shocking nothing. is that more than anything? I'll tell you what, buddy. But that's God's grace, man. Like, we can say near your know? ricochet or around or you know, no, you know, you we we were looking at some of the gear that we recovered in the ditch and different items had holes and pieces of burns and things right. through that 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 were damaged and whatnot but our bodies were whole you know there was nothing physically wrong yeah our ears were ringing you could hardly hear and you know those kind of things you know which took a, it took a, took a while to re, to just you know come out of that that experience and um go through the debriefs and then basically we're told we're going back I mean, within 24 hours, we're told we're going back because we had to get the radios and the crypto that were in that in that pack. So then it was like, okay, we got to go back. And guess who buried the bag? It was me and Charlie Hopkins. <laughs> so guess who's going back? <laughs> you know, you had, go back, so, you, you had to go back and get it, and you went back and got it. No, no, we didn't have oh, to go yeah. back because there, however, it all played out. Uh, the way the bombs dropped and all this other stuff. Remember, I was telling you that's where the that last bomb that blew that crater out. I mean, that's where the trees uh, were, and that's where those right. bodies were coming through. So, and the and the war had had moved so quickly that it wasn't. You know, I, I have to say, I mean, I'm I'm the young medic on the team, so I I I, I strongly assume the risk versus gain of getting a, a radio that we didn't need anymore because the the, the ground offensive was over with within you know, days, you know, so 
Um, was it worth risking aircraft and more people to go get a, a blown up rucksack full of radios and batteries, you know, with some crypto in there? So we didn't have to go back, uh, but we did reset and go into Kuwait and cleared bunkers up in Kuwait, the trenches and stuff, the Iraqi trenches. So we were involved with that operation for, for a while. So literally that's like, that's the, the, the taste of combat, right? Like that's your, your, your lone. Yeah. So yeah, as, as, as the young medic on five, two, five, that was my christening. And, and, and it really set the stage for the rest of my career. It was the the best foundation you could ever have because, you know, it wasn't long thereafter that, you know, going through some more schools and whatnot and, and SOCOM with the range school and some other schools and so forth that I was soon to be the team sergeant of 525 because our, our team was broken up for the most part upon our return. So with all that, you know, instant experience of the guys, the senior guys, they were drafted to go to Fort Bragg, the, to the Special Warfare Center. Uh, our uh, Chad Baldwin was also taken um, it basically there's three guys left on the team after we returned and things were reconsolidated. Me, Jimmy, Jimmy Weatherford and uh, Terry Harris were left with five, two, five. And then, and it was all, then it was reconstituting a brand new team, you know, new guys that hadn't been to school school and all this so forth. So um, new team sergeants, new team leaders and so forth. But uh, as time would, t- uh, you know, my continued efforts on five, two, five got me ready as a team sergeant and we deployed to Somalia. Right. So you were, you were actually there as part of uh, Operation Gothic Serpent, but didn't la- you weren't there in October when. No, no, down. actually. Uh, on the airfield, you know, I, I did link up with a lot of the Ranger guys that I went to Ranger school with in 6-92. And um, my our mission over there primarily was. Was taken out you know, using our sniper teams and so forth and then around the airfield, we did some uh, assaults on. General Deeds places of caches and whatnot. Uh, we did get have a few little uh, situations where we're uh, working as with the Pakistanis, and uh, they got they got you know hammered with machetes real bad. Me and Terry here were out on that operation with that, and um, we also were doing some operations up in Basaso, Somalia, up in the Horn of Africa, which was the quintessential special forces mission, big time. Uh, we had a location up there that uh, we had a house. We were getting our own food um, from the ocean. We had uh, recruited a guard force that we had to train and so forth for further on operations up in the north. So I had that opportunity to work up there with the eight-man element. And it was, uh, it was the, uh, the, 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 I mean, really, uh, the quint- I mean, the, as far as working with, uh, host nation people, NGOs, other government organiza- organizations and leaders. Uh, that was a, a great experience. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's crazy uh, to think that there's a lot of this like combat adjacent experience for you. Uh, mm-hmm. at that time with, with ODA five two five and, and what you went through during Desert Storm. Um, it is, you know, it's just an incredible story. Like, I mean, it, it's something that nobody. I, I deployed to Somalia, you know, in fe- early February. And on our anniversary, our ODA was in a firefight in Somalia. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, within two weeks of being in country. So we, 
Yeah. It's it, it, but we were, you know, we were prepared. And we, the, again, the guys were outnumbered and they made it back. And we, we did, we had patrols down there around in Kismayu foot, you know, on patrol, being dropped off by the Black Hawk helicopters at night. We had routes to recon on foot and identify elements, you know, you know, enemy forces, if you would, operating in that area. And we did not get detected. Now, you know, and, but this is all as a result of the experience, a lot of the experience that happened during the Gulf War and, and bringing that home and just, you know, I can't, you know, Terry Harris was, was, was our engineer. He was our demolitions expert. He was so gifted in navigating a jungle. I mean, we had a situation, we had to return to a, an, a landing zone and we had been walking through basically jungle terrain for over an hour. And he went in, in the middle of the night and he made it back to that LZ like he had walked that trail or whatever that was a hundred times. And we had situations where we had to set up and watch these little villages where some activity was happening and just, you know, you know, Kent Alasky and some of his skills that came just the, the professional working with people that are just so passionate about their jobs and their, and wanting to do their very best for the man on their left and right and whatever skills that they had. And, um, yeah, you, it, it's, it's an, it's, it's, it's an awesome, it's a life, man. And and it's a blessing to be almost 60 years old and be able to share that. And, and the, the biggest blessing is I'll tell you something else. I've, I, I've worked with guys from the fifth special forces group, almost up, up to, and I'm still good friends with them. And I, I got some guys that I had worked with in Blackbird Technologies and in Raytheon that I've been with for over 20 years. They know my, our wives know each other, our children know each other, and um, and we're still working through life's experiences to this day, and that's the experience and the brotherhood that, and and the blessing is to be working with the young special operations soldiers all these years, and watching, and and I was on the technical aspect of it, so to take an experience in 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 the old days, you know, I've been called an old man a lot lately. But to have to be physically on the ground within 300, 400 meters to identify a vehicle or something to now where, well, let's let the drones do it. You know, I mean, the, the, to see yeah. that, that, that quantum leap, I mean, it, it, but to be on, to be able to be the, you know, the contractor guy that I used to poke fun at my whole life when I was in uniform, I was that guy now. But I was able to to learn to to share experiences on how to use these different tracking devices in very unique ways that were so successful for Blackbird Technologies and the special operations community during the Afghan and Iraqi campaigns, you know, and identifying targets and follow on targets immediately following. I mean, it was it was it, it to to just have and to work with the same people that I have been with since the late 80s and 90s. You know, I mean. Yeah, it's 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 humbling. Um, you know, again, and you, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the yeah. rest of your career goes um, 
without much uh, of you know notable because nothing was going on really. You know, I mean, right. it's just yeah. It, yeah, it's the way it is. You get stop loss before nine eleven. Uh, yeah. You were already on your way out the door. Like you had planned. Yeah. To I had that great experience uh, with uh, 525 up in Uzbekistan. Who would have known, you know, a month later yeah. that we would be setting up in Tashkent, you yep. know, at an airfield where I just left. So, I mean, a lot of those relationships and stuff were very fruitful for the, for the unit, you know, right. that next month, really. Mm-hmm. So, um, and yeah, as the rear D guy, nothing, nothing, no, no combat by any means, but once again, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, and I say all that just to kind of, you know, yeah, but, but it was winding down already. It was winding down as far as my yeah big career experiences go, but to be there for my, the younger guys and, you know, the casualties that were coming in for fifth group from Afghanistan in the early days to be there, to greet their families and to share with them and to visit the hospitals. And we did have some fatalities of, of friends of mine medics and so forth from from second battalions and and so forth and to and you know that has a lot to do with that book on those 365 days of scripture because the only thing we had a lot of these kids when they did you know my dad these 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 questions that would come up and and you had to to bring peace to their hearts and to the to their wives and 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 it never ends it never ends. You know, uh, I'll, I'll just share with you some of the, you know, I had a, a, a Navy SEAL great friend of mine uh, that committed suicide. And, and I, I may have been the last guy that talked to him on his cell phone and he, and I was working with him and um, some of the, you know, these, these life experiences and, and having the ability to articulate hope through Christ has been has been the experience of a lifetime because what do you say to a child what do you say to a wife what do you say to a teammate um when the words are inconsolable yeah how how do you and to see that the level of love among your peers in uniform and to the extent that they will go to comfort one another in these traumatic times is is some is a story never told. And, and my son was at Fort Benning going through the officer basic course. And I was able to go to the infantry museum and I had my wife and my uncle and my parents with me, you know, to, to visit my son there. And we're at the museum and going through all the different, and all my family are veterans. You know, my uncle Bob served in the Navy. My dad was in Korea uh, so at, at that infantry museum, everybody had a story to tell. And at that museum, they had a special room set up for families. And I was able to go with all my family members through these different conflicts and wars and not shed a tear. But when I went into the room for the families and I saw the photographs, and if anybody hears this and has been to that museum, they know exactly what I'm talking about. And when you see the photographs of the wives and the husbands and the children hanging on the fences, watching their loved ones get on those planes and get on those buses and not knowing if they'll ever see them again. And that broke me because I'll tell you what, it, it, there's so many prayers being sent, said in that ditch that Chad Baldwin's talked about, but there are even more prayers being said by our fellow Americans in church on Sunday mornings and on the radio stations and, and all the, the parades and, and 
things that are going on for our people, for our men and women in uniform. And when you come home, that's when you need to be thankful for all those prayers that are be sent by, by your Americans at home when you deploy. So that, that, that's, that's the roll up, man. That's a full circle of life right there to, to be able to go as a young man, serve your country valiantly, uh, and then come to the understanding of the reality of God's in control. When it's all said and done, he's the man. He created you. He gave you a name. You're on this earth. And by golly, be thankful when you come back, because there's a lot of people back home, you know, lifting you in prayer. So yeah. I've been able to, to share that in that no one is fatherless book, because a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of kids out there, a lot of people came, didn't get their dads to come home and uh and it and it it hits you so no i mean a hundred percent it does i I mean i wonder you know you talked about some of the casualties from fifth group coming back at the beginning yeah uh, you know the invasion of afghanistan Mm -hmm. is there a moment where you start to see that and you look back and you think back to what you had went through and go how the hell do we ever get out of there like yeah now we had our casualties you know in somalia yeah no uh, Pat Balog, our, commands, our company sergeant major, and uh, Brian, and, and they, they got ambushed and they got hammered. And uh, we had we had our vehicles shot up. I mean, like shot up. We had uh, armored glass and stuff on our Humvees. Uh, sergeant Deeks had 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 uh, was blown up in an IED early on, but right prior to us getting there. So our vehicles, we were we were doing what we could to armor up our vehicles, sandbags and the floorboards, uh, the armored glass and so forth. We're doing what we could with what we had to modify our own vehicles, you know, as we were out patrolling and so forth. And, uh, you know, we did have our casualties and so forth. So, and we did have the mortar rounds coming in and we had, we had the, the, the attacks that nobody hears about, you know, because they're so, you know, there nobody got injured, so I, you know, it, it's just these, it's just life out there in these, these uh, countries that are hostile to our presence, that 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 Americans are there serving. You know, we're seeing Syria in the news right now because things are yeah. happening. But how many people have forgot about the guys in Syria? You know, and gals. So I mean, we got we, we our service members are just in so many countries that, and things happen you know, and, uh, yeah. Do you think that, um, you know, had you not had the combat experience you had, you would have gravitated towards faith so heavily? Oh, not have gravitated. Oh, no. I, I, yeah, the combat experience was a big deal to have to do with gravitating towards faith. I mean, it's one thing, you know, to, as far as in regards to faith, you know, when you hear faith, what does that mean? That means I'm going to pray. That means I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to read the Bible, you know, but to experience Jesus, to be in a situation where the odds are you're just not supposed to live. You're just not going to make it. Yeah. Uh, there, there's two, 300 people out here. that are going to prevent you from going home and they're going, they're bringing it to you. So, and, and there's just other circumstances that you just can't make it up. You know, why did that mortar round land on the other side of the wall? If it would have went five more feet, it would have landed on my side of the wall and blown me up. Um, you know, why, why did that Humvee get be able to pass through that flooded road 
that was put there to stop you so they, they could lay it into you with a 50 cal. So you, you, there, there, there are just too many instances that occurred that, Hey, it's not your time because you have a story to tell. You have to share these miracles, you know, and, and, and that's exactly right is because answered prayer builds your strength, builds your faith, you know? So, um, yeah, absolutely. Combat experience definitely strengthened my faith. Sure. And, um, yeah. So, and, and I came from a, as a military guy, my family was broken. I'm going to, I'm just going to shoot you straight. I was a loose cannon. You know, I, I was, I was physically uh, strong, fast, agile. My endurance was, was noted. Uh, climbing ropes, ladders, obstacle courses. I was, I was, I was leading the pack in all these things. And it, and it goes to your head as a guy, you know, you don't think about God. You don't think about praying. I don't need that. You know, you, you're driving hard. And, and at my first, my, you know, my first wife, my two daughters, you know, they paid the price for that. And, and I was divorced early. You know, I met my current wife while I was, uh, Carol, who I've been married with for over 34 years, I met her while I was going through the medical course. You know, one month after my son was born, I, I was I was gone, you know, for months. A month after my second son was born, I was gone. I was in ranger school for months, right? So, and not only that, uh, you're not the best person when you come home. You start mentally building up because, you know, my thing with my sons was boys, as soon as they were old enough to do push-ups and flutter kicks, guess what? They're doing push-ups and flutter kicks because I, oh, I was in you're that dad. <laughs> yep. No, I mean, I was doing it with them. So, Hey, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, they, my kids, uh, my sons, you know, they had the, to listen to them tell stories about what it was like being with dad is, is as the, they, they could make a movie about it. And, 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 you know, we lived out in the backwoods of Kentucky, man. And Linton, Kentucky is in the backwoods. It was gravel roads to get to my house back there. We lived on deer meat, squirrels, and catfish. So, uh, and my boys were taught to shoot, move, and communicate and exercise. Those faith, fitness, and knowledge were the survival pillars. When I would go on a deployment, I would come back and and and, and we'd talk about it, you know. And uh, But they, they grew up, they're fine young men. They've grown up. You know, I, I couldn't be prouder, you know. You know, it's it's so funny. Uh, you said those three terms, and I just chuckled. Move, shoot, and communicate. Yeah. I remember that on active duty as a lieutenant in a pre-9-11 world. Yeah. I always thought the people who said it were the douchiest people in the world. I'm like, <laughs> we're in an office. I don't understand what you move, shoot. I'm, I'm talking to you right now. What do I got to move? We're, we're standing right next to each other. What, what, yeah. I don't have a gun. What, what are we doing here? And then you yeah. learn what it means when you're in combat, because, you know, those three things are Yeah, obvious. yeah. Um, yeah. to be able to do it at the same time effectively uh, right. in order to do it. But the idea of, of expressing that to, you know, kids, adolescent kids to me or pre-adolescent yeah. kids to me is, is rather comical. Um, I'm sure I've probably done that at some point in time with my kids. Uh, sure, you, know, you will. These three things <laughs> to communicate together, kids. Uh, yeah. You know, right now I just want them to run, catch and throw. But, the, you know, that's right. Uh, might be asking a little bit too much at yeah. that rate either. I, so, as a dad with my two sons. Uh, it was faith, fitness, knowledge, you know, the whole body, you know, yeah. you had to be strong. I want you to do something every day to get stronger. I want you to do something every day to learn something new. And I want you to recognize that you were created by God 
and he knows your name because I'm going to fall short. Right. And, and you're going to have to rely on the big man. So, and that was my emphasis with my kids. And, and, and that book reflects a lot of that. And, and then as I matured and my, the spiritual side of myself gained confidence and I learned that you have to exercise your faith to become spiritually strong. You have to pray. You have to engage with your brothers and sisters in Christ and, 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 and help each other and grow in the knowledge of God to get to know God better. And, and as a, when you, when you include your family in that, they, they, everybody has a center focus. It's the cross and you, you're not, you're not being pulled apart by minor peripheral, peripheral interferences in relationships, because your relationship is not to please one another, but is to be morally grounded to the cross. And, and you take better care of each other focused on the cross. It just naturally happens. And it has been reflected in, in our, my marriage, which every marriage has its ups and downs sure. and struggles. But it, when, when we were focused on the cross, we, we were able to work through challenges and when my, and it, and it works with, with the relationships within our family. And it was difficult. I'm, I mean, my daughters were, didn't have a dad, right? You know, and and they taught me forgiveness because my daughters Kim and Lynn forgave me for not being there, and and you know being and I was selfish. You know, I mean, I I get it. I was so focused on myself, my career. I mean, throughout, you know, you know, you're so embedded on being that, you know, that soldier, that that guy, that teammate. Uh, that leader that you, you emotionally detach yourself from the emotional side of your wife, your children, because you start, you know, you're going on another deployment, whether it's training or otherwise, because crap happens on training events. You know, you train, you train harder than you, than you hopefully have to endure in combat. So yeah, it, you know, there's communication problems there, you know? So is that what you want people to get out of the book? Yes. I want people to get out of the book to focus on the cross because I tried to do it as a soldier. I I was always able to fix everything that I had control in. You know, when I was a senior NCO in operations, a team sergeant, if I wanted something done, I said, you do this. And he would say, yes, or you do that. And he would say, yes, you come to me, you know, and, and go here and go there. And I want you to, you know, whatever they would do it as I did as a soldier. But you can't treat your family like that. You can't you can't treat others like that with that mentality and that curtness and that um, you have to learn how to love. You know, you have to look, you know, you know how you touch, you know, giving somebody a hug, just that hug. You don't have to say anything. Just give them a hug. Your kid, give your kid a hug, you know, let them know that you are so important to me and I want you to feel it. Let's play a hypothetical game here. I am yeah, not, I'm not a religious person. I'm not, okay, I get it. I believes in God. I'm an atheist, whatever. Right. Why, why yeah. do I want to read your book? What does your book give me? Your book? I give you a path. It's a simple, cause I was a guy. I didn't have time for God. Right. All right. I'm too busy. My feet hit the ground. I'm going to the gym. I'm drinking my protein drink. I got my, my plugs in. I'm rocking it. 
I'm tearing steel up. You know, I'm ready to kick butt and I'm, and I'm me, right? If someone's got a problem, deal with it. You know, I got that attitude, but you know what? Hey, give God a chance. Give it a chance. You want, do you want to experience, do you, do you want to be alone when you're 40 years old? I mean, really alone because you can't be physical the whole, your whole life. You're not going to be good looking your whole life. All that vanity, all that. Yeah. You get, you know, you, Hey, God forbid. You have a bad parachute. I had a bad parachute accident. I'm pain. I mean, I feel it today. You know, I I woke up in the emergency room. My wife hold my hand, and the doctor cauterizing my nose because it was over here sitting on my cheek. You know, because I <laughs> I parachuted into a into the ambulance on a jump at Fort Campbell, and it rang my bell good, and it, and it, it and it hurt. And uh, but you don't know. See, you don't know when it's over. You know. So with that said, take. 30 seconds and read one devotional a day because that's how simple it is. They're one quick deals. They're the 365 devotionals that I had to share with my entire family because I failed as a human father. I did not meet everybody's expectations. I didn't just, it did, did as hard as I tried, I couldn't do it. But when I surrendered to Christ, and I said, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I, f- I feel the guilt of my daughter's not having a day. I feel the guilt of my youngest son telling me, after now he's big enough to whoop my butt. He said, Dad, I was afraid to be with you because I felt I was on death row. And I was like, Blake, why, why would you say such a thing? He said, Dad, every time we, we would go out and do whatever, go anywhere, and something didn't go quite right, you would explode. And I thought I was going to get killed. And boy, I tell you what, you talk about failing as a father, hearing that from your son, you kidding me? That, you know, that takes, that's a time for, you know, you need to reevaluate what, how did I fail so miserably? I, he had, you know, I gave that kid everything a father could do, you know, humanly, but I didn't hug him enough. I didn't tell him, Blake, you know, I, I didn't hug my kids enough. I wasn't there when they were scared you know, and, and, you know, you got young children right now and I used to, and I, I, and it's critical right now with kids to know that their dads, they're loved. And you know what? You need to teach your kids that I might not, I'm going to fail. I promise you, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to hurt you bad. I'm going to emotionally crush you because I'm going to, I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to be, I'm not going to show up for your graduation. I'm going to miss your wedding. I'm going to fail in some way that's going to hurt you, but you know what? There's always hope in Christ and those scriptures in that book build you to that relationship with Christ and your heart will change. If you will soften your, give God a chance, give it a chance one day at a time, read it, think about it and then go back to the gym and tear it up. You know what I mean? Go, go get it. There you go. You know, awesome. go get it. Go get some. But you know what? The seed's been planted. And when you're out there in those woods and you're in God's creation, see, we live in a world right now that we live in a man-made world. But I, you know, I I love the woods. I was as a kid growing up in Western New York, I was more comfortable in the woods, in God's creation, if you would. Letra State Park's a beautiful place. It's it's the Grand Canyon of the East, and I. 
And I wasn't, I, you know, I grew up a Catholic. I, I, I got it because I was in nature, if you would. I was watching animals being bored. You know, you talk about the medic thing, our veterinarian. I was pulling calves out of cows, you know, at 14 years old with the vet, not getting queasy, but I was watching birth. You know what I mean? So yeah, all this stuff was going on that, you know, that was meant to be like it should be. So when I would, I was, I felt at home in the jungle. I felt at home in the desert. I felt at home with the scorpions and the snakes and, and, and the, the jackrabbits that I would chase down physically chase down jackrabbits in the, in the desert with another teammate. So we would have some chow, some, some fresh meat, you know? Uh, so these, these, are that's what that book offers you. Yeah. Gives you a path because you know you're gonna you're gonna if something traumatic happened in your life, whether it's broken marriage, you know, fail, failed relationships with your children, and so forth. You, you, it's not over. Just it's not over. putting it back together. You yes. you can you can you can go forward. You can you can you can learn to love your family, and yeah. and that's what that book's gonna steer you in that direction to. To be there, to know how to talk to people, to give them words of encouragement, to 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 just touch them, nice, give them a hug. Don't be afraid to be a, a dad, you know. Yeah. Um, words of encouragement, give them love, and 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 teach them about how God loves them. Because one day, son, I'm not going to be here. One day, daughter, I'm not going to be here. And don't don't be afraid. I'm going to a better place. Don't be afraid. You know, what was that? What was that thing in the military? They told us sit, look, and listen. Right, sit, look, and listen. When something doesn't feel right, stop. I was always bad at two or three of those. By the way, for the record, you did. Did you fail Ranger School? <laughs> I was but, just bad. You know, I, I was how bad important was that? I was always looking around. Yeah, when something didn't feel right, that's the Holy Spirit telling you, "Hey, boy, you better chill right now. Stop, because there's an ambush sitting up in front of you." Yeah, you know. It's coming. And, and then, so you would stop. And that, you know what that teaches your family, what that teaches people? Just don't panic. Don't lose right. your mind. Sure. Stop. Reevaluate. Take a few steps back. You know, that's that's the things that, you know, you learned in, yeah, in ranger school, patrolling, um, you know, the, 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 the looking for those, I, you know, in today's, our, our, our veterans. Yeah. Right? yeah. Oh, my gosh, man. Yeah. No, don't, don't, no. Haste makes waste. Just stop. One is none, two is two is one, you know. Um slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Yeah, exactly, yeah. buddy. Front sight, front sight. Yep, so there you go. uh yeah. So um all these you know what? If I don't and, and I was convicted, I'll tell you right now, Mark. I I I tell you, I couldn't sleep. At, I you know, the whole how this book came about with talking to Pete and a friend in high school, being in a bind. You know, and and I, I was excited, man. I, I I was talking to my daughters again. I got to see my grandchild, you know, from my my daughter Lynn, and and that was not in the future for me with doing it myself. I had I had already failed that. But those what I was using WhatsApp, a teammate of mine, Eric. I get a little nervous about sharing last names, but his name's Eric. His wife is Pam, and they'll know. He gave, he told me, he said, Dan, check out this Bible app. You know, smartphones were a new thing back then. So we had, so I started looking at that daily devotional. And then, you know, the Holy Spirit was working in my head. So I started sharing those daily devotionals with my entire family, my two cents worth. My son, Blake, started getting them. Dad, that's not two cents, man. That's 50, 50 cents. 
So that's part of it. It's kind of a little smart little chat there that I had to share in that. Aren't you glad the kids are always on top of it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, hey, man, step ahead. I, I, I'll tell you, I know I'm babbling. I don't want to get get on, you know, I don't want to convert you on radio here. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's so true, though. And, and you know, at, at where I'm at in my stage of my life, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I, like I, I shared, a lot of the, the guys that I've served with are no longer with us. But when it's quiet and we're sitting there with with our brothers in the end we're always praising the lord and we're praying that we'll be in valhalla together you know together. And, you know and 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 we're wishing the best for their families and we're filling in you know to to take the place of those that are lost in various ways in our communities for our veterans that that don't come home or that are they're badly banged up and um but that's what it's about so it's just another venue to to share through experience how the lord who i believe you know sincerely our lord and savior jesus and you know laid the foundation for joy on earth in a very dark world i'll just leave it at that you know and um you know you know here we just had the situation in nashville uh good there's good and evil out there buddy and it's really clear to see where evil is at mm-hmm. you know um my daughter still live in europe in germany um i was recently there and i see how things have changed with the war with russia and ukraine and just how things are managed and um the fear factor you know when i was growing up there i didn't grow up with fear i was fearless you know Today, everybody's locking their doors, locking this, locking that. They got guns in their house. They're locked and loaded, ready to go. Someone's, you know, I mean, COVID set the stage. I work with young people now, the high school kids that serve, you know, that lived through that lockdown period where they couldn't talk to their friends and so forth. And 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 we need we need people to step up and share hope. Now, where it's it's at a critical state. There is there can be a lot of bad things happening in your life, but. If you have faith, I've learned that if you have faith in Christ, you know, there's, there's good, there's light at the end of the tunnel, man. You can, it's all right. You you don't give up, you know? So well, perfectly said, perfectly yeah, said. Don't Again, give up. The book is, uh, no one is fatherless. You can go to the yes, website, no one is fatherless.com. Get the book there. Again, 365 days of daily devotionals. And Dan, I mean, it's been, I, I, lo- I love the story. I do. I, I, I yeah. love it. It, it, the ODA five two five story, and, and certainly, yeah. Buzzsaw's daughter got married this month. So there you uh, go. Um, him, you know, yeah, and you know what's interesting too is you're not you're, you're not alone, um, and you you don't have to worry about converting me. I mean, so many no, of no, us no. have found faith in, in you know, I mean, it's a God, faith, and country. You know, I mean, that's right. it. Those are the three. Yeah, exactly. That would have built uh, who we what are uh, built and, upon. Yeah doesn't mean that everybody has to believe in the same thing or, you know, as Till Valhalla says, it doesn't matter what you believe. We'll all be together right. as yeah. the fallen. So uh, I think they're wonderful words. Uh, I, I love the sentiment. I, I love your story and I appreciate you Thank reaching you. out and being willing to share it. It's been amazing getting a chance mm-hmm. to talk to you. I know you. And uh, I, I hope, I hope everybody buys the book, keep it at their bedside 30 seconds a day. It's worth it. Uh, yep. even- Take a shot. Thank you so much, Mark. You know, just looking at you on the screen here, I can see your fine young man. You know, you, you know, you got kids, I, you know, I, ask, I guess, but yeah, thank you. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I wish you the best, man. And um, yeah, it, it really is about our children. I mean, really, it, it's all yeah. about the kids and um, and taking care of taking care of people uh, to our left and right, and 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 giving showing the people, you know, there there is there's there it's the, uh, there's a better tomorrow. By golly, so um, you know, let's let's not quit, you know, yeah. and uh, that's definitely not. I'm just I'm just very appreciative for giving me this opportunity to share. Oh, thank you. I, it was great yeah. to get a chance to know you, and and. Yes, uh, Again, loved hearing the story. So, uh, you know, uh, wonderful words. God be with you. God bless, as they say. You know, Amen, brother. Exactly. There you go. Dan Kostrevsky, thanks so much for being part of the Hazard Grind. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. God bless. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.